Well, good morning. It is good to be back. We'll see how, how far we get before we start a coughing fit, but um, certainly a delight to be back and to see all your faces again. Why don't we take our Bibles in this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we are going to continue our march through the book of 1 Corinthians, and our text this morning will be verses 20 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 25. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not for to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole world, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall upon his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. And so this morning, again, I pray that you would help us to put away the distractions of the week and that you would help us to, again, concentrate and to hear from you. May your spirit, again, work in our hearts. We know nothing good will be produced without it. And so I pray whatever is said this morning is true and accurate and that your Holy Spirit will guide our understanding so that we will see the truth of your word here this morning. Again, change us, convince us of the truth that we might be more Christ-like to the praise of the glory of our Savior in your name. Amen. Well, we have been going through chapter 14 in Corinthians, and really we, we started this section back in chapter 12 where he said, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And so we know that this whole section is having to do with spiritual gifts and their use. And so as we have come through chapter 12, again, he has, he has explained spiritual gifts. He's even told us the priority of gifts. And he says that all these gifts must be exercised in chapter 13 in love. And now as he comes to chapter 14, he's really going to get to the crux of the matter. He's getting down to brass tacks, as we would say, and he says to the Corinthians, listen, your problem is, is that you have been pushing tongues to the top. You think this is the greatest manifestation of God's, of the Holy Spirit. This is what is, what is needed. This is ultimately what you want, and you want it not because you're edifying the church, not because you're making everybody else better, but because it exalts you. It makes you feel good. 
And so he now comes here and he wants to again to show us the priority of gifts. And he starts very clearly at the beginning of this. Pursue love. That's the greatest virtue. will go through all eternity. Yet desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you should what? Prophesy. So he lays out very clearly at the beginning of this text, and he's going to go through this. Corinthians, though your emphasis has been on tongues, actually what you need to recognize is that prophecy is most profitable for the gathering of the body together because it is what is, will edify the body the most. And so it is, the, it is the greater gift. And so you as a group, you as a church, should prioritize prophecy, hearing from God as he speaks. And so he has gone through this whole text so far in chapter 14, and he has, he has explained why prophecy is better. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It, it edifies the body rather than than just the individual if, if, if something is if a gift is lifting up a person and edifying him it's a bad thing and so he says listen tongues are, are to edify and edification then he says comes through the mind he says you have to understand it in other words there's nothing that happens without understanding you can't be edified without understanding and so he says you even need to use your mind in worship and singing it's useless to be doing speaking in tongues and and have actually speaking in a real language and praising God and praying to him and yet having no comprehension it's of no value to you he says you're it's just like playing an instrument Nobody understands it if there's no tune. Nobody's going to tap their foot. There's many kinds of languages in the world, but none of them without meaning. And so if you babble and nobody knows what you're saying, even if it's a real language, you're a barbarian. And again, he says, seek edification. And so he says, you can't worship God without your mind. You can't pray. You can't sing. And now really Paul is coming, I would say, to the height of his argument here as he wants you to understand that prophecy is superior to tongues. And he wants to, he wants to give that final shot across the bow for you to recognize why we stress prophecy over tongues. And so when he comes here, he says, I want, I want to give you three things that you must recognize in order for you to understand the superiority of prophecy over top of tongues. And I want you to understand how these two fit together. And he says, first of all, you're going to have to recognize if you're going to understand these things, if you're going to understand that prophecy is better and superior to tongues, you're actually going to have to think maturely. In other words, it takes mature thinking to actually differentiate between why one is better than the other and then he says actually I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you the purpose of tongues and then I'm going to give you the purpose of prophecy so that you can now have this in your mind this can educate your mind this can mature your mind so that you understand why they're here 
And then after understanding why they're here, you can use your mature thinking, as it were, to look and see, look at the effect of tongues, look at the effect of prophecy. This is why prophecy is superior. And you could almost say, you could almost make these into steps. Without mature thinking, you're not going to understand the purpose. And without understanding the purpose, you're not going to know to look for the effect. And so it's almost like these work on top of one another. And so he begins this passage really with the idea is that you must have mature thinking. Recognize that in order to understand the superiority of prophecy, you must have mature thinking. And so he starts here exactly with that. And he says, brethren, and again, he puts himself with the people. He again is giving a term of an affection as he draws them together. And he needs to, because he's about to give some bad news. He's about to give them something that's not going to be pleasant. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Now, if I was to come up to you or anyone came up to you today and said, you are so childish in your thinking. Your first response is, thank you for that, right? No. And so Paul, Paul is giving some, some, some hard language here. In fact, he doesn't just, in, in, in the, in the translation we have says do not be children in your thinking he literally is saying stop being childish in your thinking he's not saying there's a possibility that you might not be he says you already are thinking like children that's your problem you are already thinking like children thanks Paul well how do children think how do children think well, if we all, we've all had children, we've all been children, and if, if you know children, number one, they are extremely self-centered. They have a myopic little world, right? Everything is about their needs and, and how they see the world, right? This is why you can look, the, a little child can look you in the eye and say, had to hit my sibling, they had a toy. Right? They had the toy. I asked them for it. They were unreasonable. They said, no, it's my toy. So I had to hit them to take the toy. Right? It just, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be so worked up, mom and dad. Right? Because their world is so tight and so about them. Right? And they're, they're easily deceived. They're, they're easily, they're, like, they, they see things in the world and they don't recognize what's important and what's not. Right? That's why a lot of you could get, get dimes from your siblings when you gave them a, a nickel because it was bigger, right? Because they don't have the perception to know what's important and they chase things that are flashy and unimportant. And Paul says to the Corinthians, this is you. I know you think you're smart. I know you think you're intellectual. I know that you think you're all that in a slice of bread, but guess what? You're childish in your thinking. You've been looking at tongues and you go, woo, flashy. I got to have it. And I have to have it because it makes me feel good. It makes me look good. And I want it. And he says, far from being mature, 
you're what? Immature. Because you don't recognize and you haven't come to an understanding. You haven't taken truth and applied it to yourself to the point where you recognize that gifting is not about you. It's about the edification of the church. And so Paul, as he, as he gives another exhortation, says here, yet in evil be infants. It's okay to be, and now he uses a different word here. Right? The first word was more about children, maybe up to age of 12. Here, he's talking about infants. It's okay to be an infant according to evil, in relation to evil. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he's not saying that children are innocent. He's not saying that they're sinless. They're somehow these adorable little things. Because any child I know, from the, the very beginning, if their needs are not met, they are the angriest, most violent little things that there are on the earth. So he's not saying that infants are perfect or sinless. What he is saying is, the last time I know, I don't know any infant who is laying there, cooing and looking at you, who has, is planning to take over the world. Right? There, there's, no, there's no evil intentions in them. And he says, according to this, he says, listen, be like an infant who has, is inexperienced in evil. He's not planning and plotting evil. He's not trying to take over the world. He's not exercising and scheming to do evil. He just wants food most of the time, right? So he says, when it comes to evil, it's okay to be infantile, inexperienced, not having anything to do with evil. And so he says, be like this. Be innocent according to evil. Now, some of us might say, Pastor, I was saved late in life. I was saved late in life. It's too late for that. It's too late. I'm experienced in evil already. I, I just can't be there. Well, here's some good news. Here's some good news for you. This is a present tense. And in other words, he says, in evil, be presently actively not like an infinite towards evil. In other words, when you got saved, you had to change of direction. And now he says, you as a believer are to be what? Innocent towards evil. In other words, don't participate in it. Don't be one who is scheming evil. Don't be, don't be experienced in it. Don't keep doing it. Separate yourself. Present actively, be separated. Every believer can do that. Every believer can be on that process of being sanctified and set apart for God. And so all of us can be there. Remember, you are not the person you were before you were saved. You have been changed. You have been transformed. You have been given a new heart and a new desires. You are a new person, creature in Christ. And you can be an infant when it comes to evil. So Paul says it's okay to be a baby when it comes to evil. Be innocent. Stay away from it. And then he gets back to his point in, at the end of the verse. But in your thinking, be mature. But in your thinking, be mature. In other words, 
like he said earlier, I, I, when I was a child, I, what I thought as a child, when I became a man, I set those things aside. And now he says, listen, you need to be mature in your thinking, Corinthians. In other words, you need to grow up. You need to recognize and have your mind transformed by truth. You must recognize that the way that you've been behaving and the emphasis that you've put on tongues is not mature, but immature. Recognize what they're for. Recognize their value and start to have your mind transformed by the truth that I've been telling you all through chapter 14. The superiority of what? Prophecy. So start thinking biblically. Start allowing the truths that I've been telling you about tongues and prophecy to permeate your mind because truth matures your mind. And again, the emphasis is on the what? On the mind. And so he says, let's, let's understand these concepts. Let's start thinking maturely. Let's stop making everything about us and our desires and our glory and about our edification. Let's recognize that gifts are for the edification of the church, the building up of the body. That's mature thinking, Corinthians. That's mature thinking. And so this is what's going to be necessary for you to allow this truth to come into your thinking and to be others-focused rather than self-focused, truth-focused rather than continuing on in immaturity. Well, Paul's not done. He says, well, if you're, you need to recognize, first of all, that you need to be mature in your thinking but now he says you need to recognize the purpose of these gifts. Now with this mature thinking, allow this truth to start to permeate. You recognize that tongues are outward spoken, that they're for the building up of the body. Now with this mature mindset and as you allow, will allow truth to shape your thinking, he says, recognize the purpose of these gifts. So he begins in chapter 20 and verse 21 and he says... In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers, but prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So he begins this section and he, he starts, it is written in the law. And again, here he's speaking in, in, in a wide sense of the Old Testament. And, he said, and now he quotes Isaiah 28, 11. By the men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me. Now in context here, Israel has been in covenant disobedience to the Lord. They have been disobeying him and Israel has continually rejected the message of the prophets. They have continually rejected the plain teaching. In fact, they think that the, what the prophets are telling them from God is too simple. It's too simple. Plain speech, not sophisticated. In fact, they say in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10, Basically, something to the effect that what? We're not children. We don't need to listen to you. Are, like, 
what you're speaking of is really, that's for children. That's not for us. In fact, they say, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? <laughs> the prophets. That's so unsophisticated. That's for babies. We're grown up. We don't need to listen to that. And so God has been calling Israel back to obedience to him. And then he says this, when we get to our verse, indeed, he will speak to his people through stammering lips and through a foreign tongue. In other words, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring Assyria against Israel because of their disobedience. And they're going to know that I am working and that I am moving because when they hear that foreign language that they can't understand, they're going to recognize that God is moving. God is bringing judgment against Israel and Assyria will overtake Israel. Now again, Israel at this point should have recognized God is moving, God is speaking, God is, is present. Maybe we should repent. We can hear them coming. They're going to run over our Jerusalem. This is the time for repentance. And yet it says, even so they what would not listen to me. In spite of a clear sign from God that God was moving in judgments against them this was the time to repent they refused to listen and so Paul says so then tongues are assigned not to those who believe but to unbelievers and so the question becomes why is Paul using this quote and how is it applied to this to unbelievers and who are these unbelievers we've got to answer these questions now many because the context is judgment on Israel will say what they're saying is tongues is a sign of judgment on Israel it's a sign of judgment on Israel because God is judging Old Testament Israel and therefore, this means that tongues is a sign to New Testament Jews that God is going to judge Israel. It's fulfilled in 70 AD when, the, when they run over Jerusalem and, and take over the temple. But I think that's taking this Isaiah quote farther than it will go. I think it's taking it a step farther than you should. Because it would seem that what Paul says is, I sent people clearly from me to Israel that they would know that I am moving and I'm speaking to them and it is time for them to return from their disobedience. And they what? Even then they would not listen. And Paul is saying, in spite of the sign, they refused to listen. God was moving, it was clear. And so Paul says, not that it is a sign. Now notice this. He says it is a sign, which means that there, it's a, a, we would say a, uh, a, a miraculous event with an ethical purpose, a finger post of God, authenticating something, right? Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 19, it says what? 
This man who you what crucified was attested to you with what? Signs and wonders. In other words, it was a supernatural work of God. And he says, this is a sign to unbelievers. Now notice this, what he does not say. He does not say to unbelieving Jews. Now remember, he is writing to a primarily Gentile church. This might be the time where he said to them, hey boys, stop speaking in tongues because there's not any Jews in your church. Or this is only for Jews. Why are you wasting it on one another? He doesn't say that. He does not say that. He says it's for unbelievers. And then he goes on and says prophecy is for who? Believers. Just believing Jews? I don't think so. Now. If tongues is a sign of judgment on unbelieving Israel, then it is the only spiritual gift given to the church that is not for the edification of the church. It, is, it would be the only gift that is given for what? To pronounce judgment. Are any of the other spiritual gifts given for that? No. None of them. So you're saying that as God builds his church, he now gives a spiritual gift to the church that has nothing to do with the church, but is only to pronounce judgment on Old Testament Israel. Now, if we look at he healings and miracles, what were they for? Signs of the apostle, right? Authenticate a message, authenticate the messenger. Now think about tongues. You go, you go to a new place, you speak in their language, you pronounce the glories of God, and they say what? Hey, that guy must be speaking from God. I want to hear what he has to say. In other words, healings and miracles authenticated a message in a messenger just like tongues authenticated the message that they were speaking was coming from God. I just want to say this before I dive into this next point, but remember, the Jews continually said, what? We want a sign. In fact, in, Jesus said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. In other words, the only sign I'm giving to you, Israel, is what? The resurrection. And Jesus was consistent with that. Matthew 16, 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah again. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say, no sign will be given to what this generation. God is saying, I'm not giving Israel a sign. I'm not going to tell you who Jesus Christ is. And in fact, even in 1 Corinthians 1.22, for indeed the Jews asked for a what? A sign. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you one. So why now would he give a sign of judgment on Israel when he said, I'm not giving this generation a sign? Well, I think for us, what we need to do then is turn over to Acts chapter 2. Now, I'm going to warn you, when we're done in Acts chapter 2, you are going to flip back to 1 Corinthians 14, because I know you guys get distracted. I've sat there. 
Acts chapter 2. Let us actually see the most clearest example of how tongues were used. Now I want you to I want you to follow this through with me. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise of violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and rested upon each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, the Holy Spirit comes. They're speaking in tongues. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. By the way, the Syrians were speaking in a real language too, right? They were amazed and astonished saying, why are all are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of them hear, we each hear them in our own language, which where we were born, Corinthians and Medes, and he, and he lists all of these, and around Serene, and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, our own language, speaking what the mighty deeds of God, doesn't that sound like the praise and singing that was going on in tongues? And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, now listen to this, what does this mean? What was the response to the tongues? What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Now here's what takes place. You ask the question, good. God, what does this mean? Peter stands up and says, guess what? I'll tell you what it means. Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared, men of Judah and all of you who lived in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and upon your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour up forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the skies and signs in the earth below, blood and fire vapor. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus now is a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. He goes into the gospel. Paul uses tongues for what? Evangelism. They heard them speaking and praising God and he says this is what it means. This is what it means. And he gives them the gospel because they are now curious because tongues have piqued their interest. What's going on there? And what's the result? 3,000 people were added to their number. 
That's how tongues are used. Is that judgment? Is that judgment? The clearest example we have is that tongues were used for what? To affirm the message and open an avenue for the gospel. And you will see what happens. Believers get saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues. Why? Because it confirms that God is moving miraculously and that the church is being spread, not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans, the half-breeds, to the Gentiles, Old Testament believers in John, all of them. And this was to show that God was speaking and confirmed to those who said, it cannot be. That's not the way God's supposed to work. And he said, here, here's the proof. God is speaking to them. So that is how tongues is used in unbelief. Three, it is, it is a tool for evangelism so that people will know that God is speaking, affirming the message and the messenger, just like every other sign gift that was given in the first century. And so the sign in Acts 2 facilitated and authenticated the message of the gospel. And that's how tongues were to function. But if you have tongues that are uninterpreted and uh, tongues that no one understands, what? It's just gibberish. It's useless. But this is how these tongues were to be used. Now, he says, look at the purpose of tongues is what? For unbelievers. In other words, it's for them. You guys are wanting to speak in tongues in the church and you think, oh, this is so great. Let's just do it. Let's not interpret it. And he says, guess what? The whole purpose is for evangelism. Does that make a lot of sense that you guys are trying to speak in untranslated tongues in the church? No, not at all. It's for unbelievers. Then he says, but in contrast, prophecy is a sign for a sign. Now for a sign is not in the Greek. For a sign is not in Greek. That is put in by the translator. And I truly don't believe that it should be there. The Holman Christian standard says it follows in speaking. Nope, that's the wrong verse. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. And I think that's a better translation. They've taken the idea of sign from the front. Because prophecy is really not a sign. Prophecy is given to the church where God spoke through men to give truth that had not been revealed for what? The result is what? Exhortation. Edification. Paul said in verse 3, but he who prophesies speaketh to men for edification and exhortation and comfort. That's the results of prophecy. And that's why it's so good for what believers. Because they have spiritual ears to hear. And they can hear the truth of the word of God. And they can be edified and changed and exhorted. And the result of prophecy is what? The building of the church. Because we have exhortation. We have comfort and edification and building up 
edified maybe through exhortation and comfort. He who prophesies edifies what? The church. And he says, here's the results of prophecy. This is why it's for believers. Recognize that's why we, we speak God's truth. Now, some of you might say, well, pastor, you've defined prophecy as foretelling. So what's that got to do with us at all? The reality is, though we don't have prophecy today, we still have the word of God that is based on their foretelling and therefore should be central to what we teach. And so we preach the word of God because that's the foretelling of the prophets in the first century that lays down God's truth that we now teach for the edification of the body. And so God is still speaking to his church, but he's not speaking through prophets. He's speaking through what? The word of God. So he says, recognize the purpose of these gifts. You guys want to speak in untranslated tongues in the body together? And he says, it doesn't make any sense. Tongues are for who? Unbelievers. If you've got all believers or primary believers here, why wouldn't earth would you want to be speaking in untranslated tongues? prophecies where it's at because you got believers who can hear understand and be edified but through exhortation and comfort so Paul says listen recognize your need for mature thinking and when you recognize that and allow your mind to be translated by truth and what the purpose are, the gifts are, then you're going to be able to recognize the difference between prophecy and tongues and what God gave them for. And now that you know what they're for, I want you to recognize the effect of them. And that's where he moves. Here's the effect of them. This is why prophecy is superior to tongues. And he moves on in the next verse. Therefore, in light of what I've just told you, in light of giving you the purpose of gifts, of these two gifts, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enters, they will say that you are what? Mad. Now again, he's speaking in hyperbola here, in exaggeration, because obviously Paul realizes that not everybody's going to speak in tongues. but there is just kind of a cute little note here that I, that I do want to emphasize. He says, so when, he says, therefore, if the whole church assembles, the whole church. In other words, again, Paul's emphasis is that what? The whole body must gather together. That's what the body does. Now, that was just my pet horse. That's <laughs> not what he's probably fully intending here, but the truth is still there. When the whole church assembled, we must assemble together fully as a church and all speak in tongues. And again, we know that not tongues isn't for everybody. That Paul's already said that not everyone has the gift of tongues. Not everybody has every gift. And he said ungifted men or unbelievers. Now we defined it ungifted as believers earlier, but here in the context, it would, it would seem, and I can't find a commentator who disagrees, that he again is real, or unbelievers, he's really speaking of the same group in this verse, and they're all unbelievers. And he's saying, when unbelievers who don't understand the language come in, and you are speaking in an unknown language that they don't understand, 
instead of, instead of convicting them, instead of calling them and piquing their interest towards God, they're going to say, you're what? You're mad. You're insane. You're crazy. Those are not positive things. Right? And so he says, listen, you're, they're going to come in here and they're going to think, what is going on here? Now put it in context of the Corinthians. They've already gone to pagan temples and they've heard people do gibberish and do, do crazy stuff. They've been to the temple of Diana. They know all of this. And they're just going to say, oh, just another silly cult. Nothing, this is just madhouse. It cannot be true. Now, very interestingly, when we see the modern charismatic movement, this is exactly what we see. We see this chaos. We see people speaking in tongues and everybody doing their own thing and rolling in the aisles. What do you think the world sees? You're mad. You're mad. Not, oh, God must be working here. There's something cool going on. They think you're mad. And so he says, this is what, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Tongues are fruitless when you come together as a body and you start speaking in them. Instead of producing fruit, it produces those in the congregation who say, you're mad. It turns them off. The opportunity to share the gospel is gone. You lose it. You lose it. But, now here comes that contrast again. Where tongues are unfruitful, prophecy is fruitful. But if all prophesy, and again, we know that not everyone prophesied. Not everybody had the gift of prophecy. Not everybody was able to do that. So again, he's using hyperbola here. But he says, listen, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters in, he is convicted by all. He is convicted by all. Now listen, remember, prophecy is primarily for who? Believers. For building them up. So when we teach the word of God and we come here, our primary mission is not to preach the gospel, but to preach the whole counsel of God so that you what? Become to maturity in Christ. Now we put Christ central. We give the gospel here because you better hear it here at Bowmanville Baptist Church. But the primary emphasis here is for the building up of the body through the teaching of the word of God to a, so you have mature thinking so you become to, to a mature man. But he says, if an unbeliever comes in, he is convicted by all. In other words, he is starting to what? Starting to feel like, guess what? There's something wrong. There's, sin, there, I'm, there's guilt here. In other words, the idea has bringing things to light, reveal hidden things. In other words, and the idea here is to bring him to light with an adequate proof of guilt. He says he starts to be convicted because he hears the truth of the word of God and he understands that he's not there. He falls short of that truth and he can't do that truth and he's convicted. He's called to account. It means to sit, 
sift up and down, to examine accurately or carefully, to make an exact and careful research into the legal process. It was used in the interrogation of a prisoner in the court of law, and he says, this is what starts to happen. He's called to account. He's given a legal examination. He's convicted, called to account, and the secrets of his hearts are disclosed. In other words, what has been unclear to him in his heart is now made clear. His motives are made clear. His sin is made clear. The things that he thought were hidden are now revealed to him by the, by the preaching of the truth of God. His sin becomes apparent and unmasked. He feels guilt because he's guilty and his sin is demonstrated to him. So that, and here's the result, and so that he will fall on his face and worship God. In other words, this man comes to what? Salvation. And every time we preach the truth of the word of God, it calls men to obedience. It exposes people's sin. It makes them feel guilty. And ultimately, they what? Are called to give an account to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, so he will fall on his face and what? Worship God. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the word of God and applies it to heart. Men recognize their sin, fall down in repentance and worship him. Declaring that God is certainly among you. They recognize now God has opened their eyes. They have felt the power of the Holy Spirit taking his word and piercing their heart and they know that God is working here. Now isn't that interesting? Because tongues were used out there to say, listen, God is working, pay attention. And guess what? The word of God, prophecy did the same thing. And he says, listen, you want to speak in tongues untranslated in the, in the body? And he says, it's useless. It turns people off. Just give them the plain truth of the word of God. And guess what? It convicts people of sin. It's actually evangelistic in and of itself. God's word is sharp, piercing, like a sword right between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It makes a whole. It works. And he says, this is why prophecy is superior. Now, in the first century, again, remind you, they are foretelling, they're giving new information from God. We now have that recorded in Scripture. And so our job is to what? To proclaim their proclamation. And so when we come together, that's exactly what we do. And it's fruitful. So instead of seeking to speak in tongues untranslated and and the chaos in the gathering of the body, we are to what? Treasure what? The teaching of the word of God because it is fruitful because they what? 
They understand. It goes through their mind. And Paul is saying, Corinthians, you were thinking immaturely. You wanted, you wanted emotion and you wanted experience and you wanted to be held high and you wanted to be showed up. And he says, no, maturity comes through the mind and you must understand that prophecy is just plain speak to people's mind and God uses that to convict them of sin and bring them to salvation. He says, why, why speak in tongues? You've already got something that is fruitful and effective. Be mature in your thinking and recognize it. And so Paul conc really concludes, now he's going to give instructions on, how, on, on some instructions on how they are to be together in the assembly in the next few verses as he comes down off of this height. But he says, basically to the Corinthians, grow up. Have your mind, your mind shaped by the truth of the word of God. And here's the truth. Right, you need to recognize the purpose for which gifts were given. Recognize where they are to be used and recognize their effect. And mature thinking will bring you to this point and you will recognize that prophecy coming together as the body of Christ is superior and should be the emphasis of the church. So why push something that is pushed by immaturity of thinking that is given for is being used for the wrong purpose and has no effect. And Paul says, choose prophecy. It's mature thinking. It's a, it is for the proper purpose. And it is effective. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in it. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for giving it to us, not in a foreign language, but you have blessed us with Bibles in our own language that we can clearly see, that we can study and we can read, and you can work through our minds, mature our minds to biblical thinking, that we would recognize the necessity of pushing those things that are edifying for the body to recognize that your word is what should be central when we get together and that it is effective in building your church and convicting others and so may we be willing to be mature in our thinking and to have our minds shaped not by experience not by things that are self-gratifying but by the truth of your word of God of your word that clearly tells us that we are to be about the edification of the body not ourselves give us the grace to have mature thinking I pray in your name amen